welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist John Stoll. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of High Action, and it features the great John Stoll. Man, I'm really excited to have this guy on the podcast. Really excited to have all the listeners check out John Stoll. He uh, is a really unique guitar player, fascinating musician, and a very well-spoken, intelligent, and articulate man. Uh, it was very easy to edit this episode because you ask John Stoll a question and he gives you just like a perfect answer. Uh, and this is good for us. We got to have some guests that really help elevate our podcast because we're excited. The podcast has been growing. We're getting listenership all over the world. And I wanted to ask uh, my colleague here, John Story, to talk a little bit about the numbers that we're seeing and uh, where people have been listening. That's right. So just for all of the listeners out there, we wanted to give a shout out to you. Thank you for following us. The podcast is growing at a really great rate. Um, Something that's been kind of cool, you guys, is that we've been on the charts in a couple countries for music interviews with the podcast. And these charts are for Apple and Spotify and a couple other different podcast servers. But like we've been number seven for music interview in Sweden. So shout out to our buddies in Sweden listening. Great Britain, we've been in the top 20. Australia, top 20. Germany, top 20. Portugal, number three. Costa Rica, number four. And we're also charting right now in Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Austria, Belgium, and Uruguay. So we wanted to give a shout out to all of you guys who are listening. And if any of you have recommendations of guitarists in your area that you feel would be awesome for us to feature on High Action, swing over to Patreon and uh, join us over there. And uh, you can kind of become a a co-producer of our show in the process. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we really appreciate all of our Patreon family helping make this podcast possible. And Will, I know that uh, you've known about John Stoll for a while, being from the Pacific Northwest, being from Portland. Talk about John Stoll's legend in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, well, first of all, man, if you haven't heard John Stoll, do not sleep on him because yeah. his sound, his time feel, his lines, in, in both the clips that we play throughout yeah. this episode, I mean, he is throwing down. Yeah. And those are, at least the first clip, it's an older one. I mean, it's it's so great to to hear that again. It had been a while since I had really gotten to dig into his music. But yeah, I got I took a master class with him in high school. And he, on top of being a great player and, like you said, a really well-spoken guy, he's a great educator when it comes to just giving you information and being really open. I mean, he's do not sleep on Mr. John Stoll. That's all I can say. Yeah, you can learn a lot from this episode. Uh, as we all have been doing from each episode. So, without further ado, please enjoy the great John Stoll. (laughs) 
Well, John Stoll, what a pleasure it is to have you here on our podcast. I was thrilled when John's story told me that you were interested and available. So let me just start out by saying thank you for joining us here on High Action. It's my pleasure to be here with all of you. Yeah, um, I've been a, a big fan of your playing uh, ever since I met you and started checking out your music. Uh, in, in my opinion, I think in a lot of guitar players' opinion, you know, you've really developed your own artistic approach on the guitar. And to me, that's, that's the ultimate goal. So I appreciate that coming from you because I, you, I hope you know that I certainly respect all of you too. And you guys have done a great job at creating an identity, not only for yourselves individually, but also with the group. And you've been playing all over the world and attracting followers and fans too now for quite a while. So I'm happy to follow your progress. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there's so many uh, questions I want to get to, so many musical things I want to talk about, but I'd also like to sort of discuss your background a little bit, uh, if you don't mind. Sure. I, I know you were born in New York and raised in Connecticut, uh, and mm-hmm. you know I'm out here in Brooklyn now, so I'm kind of really experiencing the East Coast lifestyle I have for about 10 years. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the things I read that was really interesting was that you credit some of your uh, early studies with the guitarist. Link Chamberlain. And, uh, right. Link I, was an unsung guitar hero in Connecticut where I grew up. Right, right. And somebody hit me to Link uh, a few years ago out here. I hadn't, hadn't heard of him before then. And I was, mm-hmm. it was a record called A Place Within, I think it was, a record he did a while ago. I was really blown he away. Did that in the, he did that in the 70s, yeah. From, he only did two recordings for Muse. That was one of them. Okay. Yeah, I was really blown away by it. Uh, you know, his technique, his virtuosity is, is incredible. Uh, personally, I really liked his, his chordal rubato stuff. I always thought he had such interesting harmonic movement and, and really beautiful sound uh, in those moments. And I'm just really curious to kind of start out by asking you what it was like studying with him and getting into the guitar at that time. Yeah, Link was wonderful. I don't sound anything like him. I mean, he sounded sort of like John McLaughlin in a way, very dense, right? lots of notes. But he, you know, he understood harmony uh, in generally, too. And he, he was really great about encouraging you to find your own voice. So he didn't say play like me. He just said, here's some concepts we can talk about. I remember him writing out a West Montgomery solo for me once. So he, you know, he was certainly aware of the tradition, even though he didn't exactly sound like anybody. Um, and very encouraging. When I got good enough that I could sit in on little gigs occasionally, he'd let me get up and play a tune. And he was doing some small gigs around Connecticut and uh, outside the city with people like Dave Liebman, Frank McCary, Michael Moore. Small gigs, so I would go every time I could. He had a regular Monday night gig that I remember that I went to for probably a couple of years at least. And, and after a while, he'd push me up and let me play a song. And everybody knew that I was a student, but they, you know, they were all very kind and recognized the fact that I was just trying to get started and find my way and was playing well enough that I wouldn't create a train wreck. So they were all great. And uh, Link was very, very encouraging. And I still credit him at workshops because a lot of the things he gave me uh, in terms of some of the concepts I still use, he had a great way of discussing modes of the melodic minor as key centers. Wow. So that then opens up melodic minor chords as potential dominant and major chords also. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying super low green, he'd say, let's play melodic minor ideas a half step above a dominant chord and mix it together with the original dominant harmony. So right. he explained all the modes in this way as keys. And I still use that concept and I've kind of extrapolated that out to cover modes of a harmonic minor, harmonic major. But it's a very easy way to introduce folks to the modes. And Link, I remember giving me that about 1971 or 1972. I've been using it ever since. Wow, tremendous. 
That's great to hear. I didn't know that Link was that sort of sophisticated in his way of thinking about uh, the music and, and theory and harmony and all that. But it sounds when I was. it sounds when I listen to his recordings, like especially the way he could connect uh, harmony in a rubato way was just incredible. Mm -hmm. Well ahead of his time, I think, and certainly unsung. I would agree. And I think he was, you know, he was a very low key guy, not really into promoting himself, and he had a good local teaching practice so he did just a couple of recordings and a bit of touring but really not much and unfortunately died very young in his mid to late 40s oh, no. i actually wow. reconnected with his son scott who was a great young tenor player when i was studying with lincoln i hadn't seen scott in about 40 years and i saw him about a year and a half ago we did a little gig and he's playing well still oh good and i tell him that i still credit his dad uh, for a lot of what i teach and understand so so certainly some guitar players know about link so you were hooking up with Link in the, I guess it was the early 70s, and I imagine you're in Connecticut. Are you spending a lot of time in New York City at that time in your life, too? Not quite. I decided I had to leave Connecticut probably in my mid-20s because there just wasn't enough, really enough opportunities there, and I was so close to New York, and I didn't have any illusions about uh, working right away in New York. I just wanted to meet some people and sit in and just be around that great gene pool and just somehow find my way. So I met a drummer named Bob Leonard, who's actually the drummer on that record of Links that you mentioned, Barry. And um, Bob lived upstate about 20, 30 miles. I was about an hour from New York. So I thought if I were closer to the city, I'd have a chance to just go in and meet some folks and maybe right. find some jam sessions. So I moved probably about 1975 from um, Connecticut to upstate New York. I was just about an hour up the Hudson River, about 20, 30 miles up the Hudson River. I found a little boarding house and picked up a job driving a little local taxi, and then I eventually uh, created some bit of teaching work for myself. And so uh, I was going down to the city on a regular basis and found a little club in the village uh, that had piano duos, very good ones generally, people like Joanne Brekeen, although I didn't play with Joanne. But I was friendly with some of the other piano players, Nina Sheldon and a few others. Mm -hmm. So I'd go down there three or four nights a week and just sit in for free with the piano and bass players. And that's how I started to meet a few folks in New York. Well, when I, I remember when I moved out here in 2009, some of the musicians that I was around that I was studying with, they knew of your work, they knew of your name. People like the drummer Tony Moreno, uh, the bassist, oh, yes, bassist Mike Richman. You know, you've had a long collaboration with David Liebman that I want to talk about in a little bit. So uh, I, I sure. always thought it was really neat that you had kind of this West Coast experience, but also uh, early on in your career, a lot of experience on the East Coast. I think that kind of forms people's opinions as players. So uh, I was really interested. I think that's right. One of the things I wanted to talk about in, in this aspect in your career was during your time in New York, you've mentioned that this is when you met David Friesen and you guys right. sort of started developing a collaboration, which uh, I'm a big fan of. Some of, some of those records uh, I've checked out and really enjoy them, want to talk about them. But can you talk a little bit about meeting David Friesen at that time in New York and sort of how your collaboration came together? Sure. It's actually happened at that little club where I used to go sit in. It's called the Surf Maid. Oh, okay. It's right next to the Bitter End. The Bitter End is still there. The Surf yeah. Maid is no longer there, although I think it's still a restaurant. So basically corner of Bleaker and LaGuardia in the village, not too far from the Blue Note and in the bar next door and some of the clubs in that part of town. Yeah. So David came in one night to sit in too, and we happened to sit in together. He had driven across the country from Portland to New York with no work set up. Wow. That's the kind of work I think, which I think he still has. He'd already, he was then in his, he's about eight years older than I am. So he was in his um, mid, early to mid thirties at that point. And he'd already had some experience on the road with Joe Henderson and Billy Harper. So he was definitely a more seasoned player than I was. So we just sat in that one night together and I said something I still say to people, let's play again. That was great. 
So he was staying in the city with Lou Marini, I believe. And so we did some other sessions. This was January of 1976. And I had my little apartment upstate. And he said, I'll, I think I'll come back again later this year. You know, it's a five-day drive each direction, guys. Wow. Pretty long drive from yeah. Portland, Oregon to New York. So he came back. And I, my little place, I had shared with a friend, kind of a little converted wooden house up in Dobbs Ferry, New York, about 20, 30 miles up the yeah. or just north of, uh, of Hastings and Yonkers. So my roommate had left, but the rent was $120 a month, $125 a month. So I said, oh, I can afford this on my own. So I had a spare bedroom in this little funky apartment. It wasn't falling down, but it wasn't fancy. So I said to David, if you're coming back later in the spring, uh, you're welcome to stay with me. There's a spare bedroom. So he came back, I think, in April of that year. And then I started learning some of his music. He found us a few little small gigs to do uh, upstate. And he has always had a talent for finding places to play. Then uh, we started moving away a little bit from standards and starting to play some original material of his. Then he decided to come back a third time that year in July and stayed with me again. So three round trips in the car in six months, guys, from Portland oh to God. New York. That's the kind of work ethic David has. So he invited me out to Portland. This is July of 76, so more than 40 years ago. I was going to stay three weeks. At that point, we had some repertoire in common. I was learning some of his music, so it felt like a musical relationship that was starting to develop. So I stayed with him and his family. First time out to Oregon. Incredible here in the summer, as you guys might know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I ended up staying all summer. He got me on a little gig that he was doing down at the coast, and the coast still takes my breath away. It's so beautiful there. Yeah. With a lady named Jeannie Hoffman, who is an interesting piano player, vocalist, okay. who kind of, she was kind of like the female equivalent of Mose Allison, sort of bluesy and funky, and quite an interesting lady. So I was playing with them two nights a week at a little condo with a restaurant and a bar at the beach. And then David found us some work in Portland. So I stayed all summer. And then he got a record deal with Inner City. He had, uh, this was a company that started out with Music Minus One. Irv Kratko was a jazz fan. So he started initially uh, licensing some records from Steeplechase and then thought he'd okay. create his own little label. And David at that point was working with Ted Curson, who was a trumpet player who played with, um, with Mingus and other folks. And uh, so David uh, was on a recording that uh, Ted had of a sextet with Jim McNeely and some other folks. Nice record. So David was offered his own record. And at that point, I knew all the material. So we drove back to uh, New York to do the recording. David put together a group with Paul McCandless with Oregon and Steve Gadd. That was the band. Wow. And me. Wow. So the other folks were obviously were much more well known. But because I knew all the material, David talked the, the label into letting me be on the record. So at that point, the relationship felt like it was going to go on musically for a while. So I decided to sublet my little place in Dobbs Fair in New York. And I came out to Oregon with no plans to, to stay out here long term. But David and I ended up working for about seven, eight years together. That was my introduction to the road with him. So from about 77, starting with small tours up and down the West Coast, then we kind of branched out a bit. We went out of the country a few times to Australia, one time to Russia with Paul Horn and his son Robin, uh, a couple of other trips to Europe some things on the East Coast. So that was my introduction to the road with him. And we did that from about 77 to about 83. Yeah, I mean, this is a theme that we've talked a lot about in this group, just the experience of being out on the road, you know, especially early on in your career, uh, getting to deal with the challenges that you face from playing different venues, sometimes one night here, one night there. Uh, and mm -hmm. you know, you've certainly been a road warrior for a long time. And I just wanted to ask you kind of the stock that you put into how important it's been to you to be on the road and gain that experience. Because as you know, the younger generation doesn't quite happen as much. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if you feel like that might be something that, you know, you're worried is not going to be as available to younger, 
and good musicians now. Yeah, I dearly hope that it is for a lot of reasons. I mean, you guys have had plenty of experience now traveling too. Um, the downside is it's a sales job, as you know, so very labor-intensive to set up the work. Mm -hmm. And very often we go out with the prospect of making no money or even losing money, but we do it because yeah. we want exposure in that market. And I would say 98% of the time, once I get there, uh, I'm happy to be there. You know, the getting there part and organizing all the small details to make the work happen, to try to generate some promotions so that people come, develop relationships with uh, either venues, promoters, other musicians, uh, you know, ways to somehow create a network to make it all happen if you're not famous is the personal connections. Mm -hmm. So in my case, it's actually mostly dealing with other musicians who are friends who are either on faculty, so I have access to some workshops, which I know you guys have done as well, uh, or musicians who know about local venues or occasionally a small concert series or maybe a festival if they know the organizer. So if you're not famous, you're just looking for any way to create a relationship. And I found that once you go someplace, you generally find out about other connections and possibilities that you would not find out about unless you went there. You meet other musicians, you find out about other venues, other possibilities. So it's networking. It's basically a sales job. Right. And, that's and that requires a lot of follow-up and a fairly thick skin because very often you have no response or people are not able to hire you. And right. Or maybe a relationship only happens one time and then it's done. So these are all uh, part and parcel to the whole freelance life. Uh, the upside is uh, getting to see great places and very often uh, staying with the people that you're playing with. So you're getting a sense of how the local folks live. Famous folks have the airport, um, the concert hall and the hotel, and that's all they have time for. They're busy with their routine and they don't really have a lot of time unless they're on a vacation to experience local life. And in my case, and maybe your cases too, um, very often if you're staying with friends, you get to find out how people live there. And that's to me just a great positive part of, of, of grassroots touring. So I've done it probably in 20 countries this way. You just meet someone who lives there and you find a way to go and you get there and then maybe you do a workshop or you do a gig, whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then you try to establish relationships and we help each other. So if you have friends who are going some places and I would extend this offer to you guys, you know, if I have connections that I can share with people who are traveling, I'm very happy to do it just because I've had this kindness extended to me now over 40 plus years of bouncing around on a shoestring. And, you know, the resume looks pretty good, but it's mostly small gigs and smaller audiences. But I'm very grateful for every opportunity. And then when you show up, you want to do your very best job that you can. So I think, uh, you know, playing for different audiences and playing with different musicians is a tremendous way to give you a great worldview and help you grow musically. Absolutely. So I think there will still be opportunities for younger musicians to do this if you have that mentality to be willing to, you know, to put on your salesman hat and just get on that computer every day and look for opportunities or reach out to people that you see on the internet and comment on their playing if you like it. And very often I've had a relationship start this way. I just make yeah. a nice comment on someone's playing that I like. And I don't say I need a new, I need airfare. I need this. I need that. I just say, you know, if you like, if you'd like to do something, I'll find a way to make it happen. That's beautiful. I, I really enjoy hearing you speak about this because I think a lot of musicians are really intimidated by the idea of going out there on the road, setting up their own dates, lining things up, and trying to do a tour. Mm -hmm. And I love the way so eloquently you speak about it, especially, you know, kind of getting to know people in their homes, experiencing the way they live, and having that be a part of your travels in addition to your performances. And I think regardless mm -hmm. of whether it's an uh, intimate venue or a big concert hall, you know, your music, uh, you've had experience in both ways, and your music definitely connects to people, whether it's an intimate setting or a big setting. Um, I wanted. I appreciate that. <laughs> I wanted to uh, kind of get back to some of your music and highlight a recording that you did with David Friesen called "Through the Listening Glass," 
Uh, that was our first recording as, right. as a duo. Although Gary Campbell is a great uh, soprano tenor player who plays soprano on a few cuts. Right. And that's almost all David's music. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And, you know, when listening to this uh, record, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the band Oregon. And I'm, I'm always, was always curious yeah. if that was, I know they were a little bit before you guys, and I was really curious before we get to the track, if you could talk a little bit about your influences for you and David for that duo and if Oregon was part yeah. of it and kind of where, where you guys well, were thinking it's kind that of a, Kind of a similar mindset in the sense that it's sort of world music. It's not exactly jazz. I mean, the harmonies that David was coming up with were almost kind of folky in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, she certainly, and I, I met all those folks actually through David. So I've known Ralph and Glenn and, and Paul. I don't know if I don't see them often, but I met them all years ago then. And I played a bit, little more with Glenn Moore because he lived in Oregon for a while. So we, we played a few gigs together. I uh, never did a gig actually with uh, with Paul. Paul is on is it two of the recording two of the recordings with David, mm-hmm. and Ralph Towner is on one of them on a couple of tunes also. But I haven't done any gigs with either Paul or Ralph. But I think they're all doing well still and all still active. And I saw a picture of Ralph a couple maybe a week or so ago at age eighty one, looking great in Italy and still doing concerts and such, which is right great. on, right on. I think I think they're all still active. I think they're all still active. Uh, so I don't think David was necessarily. I mean, David certainly knew and liked. Uh, all of them as composers. He's actually done some duo uh, gigs and recordings with Glenn where they both alternating bass and piano. So he's certainly aware of all of them in terms of their compositions and their approach to the music. And in case it's a bit different and uh, it's actually evolved quite a bit from the time we played together because he did about 10 years with Denny Zeitlin. So his harmonic palette really expanded in some nice ways as a result of those interactions with Denny, but that was maybe 10, 15 years later. Okay. So when we were doing things, the music was sort of triad based, uh, not a lot of sort of obvious diatonic harmony that you find in a jazz standard. So I was just trying to find a way to create a uh, sort of an improvising vocabulary um, in this harmonic context that he was creating. Uh, it wasn't so many odd meters, but it was, yeah, I mean, he kind of created his own little musical world and I had to find a way to fit into that somehow. Part of that was adding some other instruments, yeah. some of which we used on that record, yeah. just to give the duo a little more color and flavor. So I eventually added a 12 string and a a little mandolin tune, like a guitar and some percussion and a thumb piano. I sort of taught myself to play all these things well enough that I could use them in the duo. So we just created a little sort of a little language and a little context for ourselves. It took a while to do it. But at that point, when that record came out, we'd been playing together for about three or four years. It's really great stuff. Um, you know, I love hearing music that is part of a collaboration, like a long-term collaboration, where you can really sense that it's a band. It's a it's a mm-hmm. it's a group of musicians that have toured together, that have been through a lot together, and there's a real connection there. You can hear in the music. I, I love hearing yeah, that. Just kind like of you stuff. guys. Well, we're trying to follow in, in your footsteps in that in that regard for sure. Oh, you and, are. You uh, are. Thank you. Well. Let me take this moment, if it's all right with you, to play a bit of a snippet from the track Tabla Eternal Friend from that record. Would that be sure. okay, John? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is on, I'm playing a, playing a 12 string on this one. I got this idea from, initially I changed the tuning, but on this recording I'm playing kind of like Pat Martino's approach to the 12 string, which we used on a couple of records. So it's the top, instead of using octaves for the um, top three strings, I had them all tuned in unison. Yeah, and this is a little snippet from from about halfway into the song um, we wanted to highlight for our listeners here. Okay, John, here you go. We're going back. This is a little musical time capsule here, guys.
Yeah, John. Man, you were burning Six back then. Six strings is enough man. for me. <laughs> Six strings is enough for me, guys. <laughs> you, were, you were burning back then, man. It sounds awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we had fun doing it. We had a really nice recording studio. I'm trying to remember where we were in New York. Nice big open room somewhere in Midtown. I think the studio is probably long gone. But good engineer. And we had fun doing it. I love your legato phrasing, uh, the space between your ideas, uh, the, the range in which you're playing the instrument. It really sounds awesome. And the 12 string. I appreciate that. The 12 string has, it has like that chorusy type of effect to it. That sounds pretty neat, right? You talked a little yeah. bit about tuning it differently. Can you go into that? How did you approach that? Yeah, I just, well, I did normally, I think, on a, on a 12. Uh, the bottom, uh, I think the bottom four sets are all tuned in octaves. And I think I tuned them, I think I, maybe I tuned the bottom three in octaves, but I think I tuned the Gs in unison. And okay. the top two are also in unison. So I eventually changed that up a little bit. And on the, some later recordings, I changed that a little. I was using some intervals on the top strings. So I changed that a little bit. That's, that was a, like a 335 12 that I had a lot of work done on, kind of modified. And I ended up playing the guitar with David probably for six, seven years. So I modified it and changed it a little bit. But for that recording, the Gs are in unison instead of octaves. Ralph Towner does amazing things on the 12, doesn't he, guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he really has his own personality on it. And I think he uses the conventional tuning where uh, everything is in octaves until you get to the two high strings, kind of the conventional. Although I think he, he, may, he may go down a whole step on that guild that he plays. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the 59 Semi Hollow and I have the OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at marchioneguitars.com. Did you guys feel like the the music you were making at the time, I mean, some sort of brand of fusion, did you feel like it was unique to the Pacific Northwest at all? That's a good question. Um, and some people had said that. I mean, yeah, that's just sort of someone maybe thinking, having, creating their own impression or their own frame of references they listen. So maybe, you know, sort of dark, misty, rainy nights, you know, who knows? I mean, do you hear any of that in the music? You can talk to 10 people hearing the same song and they all take, bring their own life experiences and impressions I, to it. I, I so think, I can see how you might, you might think this is sort of a product of the Pacific Northwest, maybe. I kind of hear that LA had its own brand of fusion in the 70s, New York had mm -hmm. its brand and, and different regions, of course, had just a sound that was being created, I think, in, in regards to the local players that were really active there. So to me, it could it, be. to me, it does make sense um, that it, there's a yeah. similar sound that comes from the Northwest that I, I hear in that duo. Well, uh, speaking of the Northwest, I wanted to start passing it, pass it over the questions here to some, some native sons of the Northwest. <laughs> All right, um, we have at least one here. Oh my gosh. You know, John, Mr. Stoll, I should say, you really hit him. <laughs> Please call me John, guys. <laughs> we have such a similar last name. You know, I, you know that. You do. I told you that Balmer <laughs> staked our phone number one time and somebody called me thinking it was you. And that, you can tell that little story. That's kind of funny, actually. I was down for the, the Portland waterfront the little cruise. Remember the one that went on the Willamette River down there? Sure. I think they still run some boats on the river. And I, I played one of those again, probably eight, 10 years ago with another friend who was doing it. Well, you know that she called me for that gig and I, you know, here I am 16 and it's the year 2000. And I'm like, wow, somebody's calling me for a gig. Oh my gosh. 
And <laughs> I've arrived. Palmer had given her my name because story and stole. It was the old Nokia phone where it was like you had to type in one by one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but anyway, I, I said, I think you've confused me with John Stoll. I'm John Story. And, and uh, yeah, it's just. <laughs> Did you take the gig? Hey, it worked out. It worked out, though. I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to leave that comment for later if I actually took the gig. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's so fun to have another Oregonian on here. I mean, Perry's a little outnumbered today because we've got three native, three Oregonians on here. And, and I want to kind of steer my question a little bit back towards just. As a performer, you're so striking and so awesome to watch, man, as a guitar player, but also just somebody who's just a music appreciator. I, I love, Perry and I sat in with you at Spazio years ago for yep. Guitar Night when we were that. down. Luther Hears was on bass, and I forget who was playing, probably Kendall K was playing drums that night. And you know, that audience is a mixture of guitar fans, but also just some people there. And everyone was just so enthralled with just, you, the way that you play, the way you hold the instrument. I'm curious, has a lot of your stage presence and the way that you connect to your audience, both guitarists and non-guitarists, or shall we say just music appreciators, has that evolved, you, you feel, because you've done so much traveling, you've played for so many different kinds of audiences, um, or is that just something that you feel like has come about as you settle more and more and more into your thing as a with your sound and stuff, and it's less about... Um, about playing for a lot of audiences. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I've always wanted to ask you that. I'm very curious. Yeah, well, I think you guys know this too, that your style as a performer and a guitarist just evolves over years and years of playing and interacting with folks, musicians and audiences. So, you know, I wouldn't think that I really have a stage presence per se, other than the fact that you just see me involved in trying to make music with the instrument. But I have gotten a little more comfortable talking to folks and relating to the audience because we want to acknowledge their presence there. You know, everyone has a different approach to that. But certainly saying a few words and thanking somebody or talking a little bit about a song you're about to play, all that I think helps pull the audience in too. And, you know, the guitar part of it, I think, just essentially evolves over time without a really conscious plan about how you're going to sound or how you want to present yourself to an audience. I think that just happens as a, as a work in progress as you play over and over again and do all these different gigs and performances. So, you know, I feel halfway comfortable now being on the stage playing and talking to folks. And my goal is just to as you know, probably create a nice flow of energy between the members of the band and then the members of the band going out to the audience and then hopefully some nice response coming back from the audience. So regardless of the size of the audience, I want that flow to be there every time I play. And sometimes happens more than others, obviously, but we all take every gig seriously, regardless of what it is, and just to show up to do the best job we possibly can. I discovered a long time ago that playing for a small audience can be just as meaningful I was playing for a big crowd. I typically play for smaller audiences, but I have played for lots of people on occasion. And you do your best in every venue, but I love being at a, even in a house concert, you guys maybe have done some of those where you're just sitting playing for anywhere between five and 30 people in the living room. And that those are great fun. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing more of those actually, I enjoy them. So, you know, my whole quote career unquote has always been kind of grassroots, the very bottom rung of the ladder of a, of a touring musician. But very grateful for every opportunity. And, uh, you know, I think that it's really more about the music than fame and fortune. I, I have no regrets about anything, basically, that could have happened that didn't happen. And I'm also happy to see someone else's success. So, yeah, man. Yeah. And it's, I, I remember seeing you at Jazz Day Opus when I was a kid. And I don't know how I got into that club because I think it was 20. <laughs> it was. Yeah, I, my mom was with me and I think they let me in, or she was like, my son's a guitar player and he really wants to see Johnson. You were playing with either Friesen or Dave Captain. I think it was right. 
Um, but yeah, man, the, the, I, re I remember being 15, 16 and being like, wow, this is a vibe. This is a jazz guitar player in a club and everyone's in here like, this is the kind of guy I need to learn from and hang out with. And I wish, I, I remember we tried, we talked about connecting and studying back then. And for one reason or another, I didn't, we didn't get a chance to do it, but it's been so fun to, to be in touch. And early on, John, I reached out to you when I was writing guitar ensemble arrangements because I know you've done some trio stuff, particularly um, when I saw you at the old church with the Guitar Summit. And the other time it was with Balmer and Mike Denny. I was just curious, are, is, that a pro is that kind of a project or that format? Oh, also three guitars at the Jazz Bakery, which I know you did with, with yeah. Matt Kelly. Is is that a format that you that you really enjoy? I mean, you know, here we are. We're a guitar ensemble, and I'm always curious other guitar players that, that dabble in that because not a lot of guys write for guitar ensemble. Is that something that you're mm -hmm. wanting to do more of eventually too? Or you know, in the case of all the times that I've done it, very different from your ensemble because you guys have lots of arrangements. In my case, it was just picking tunes and then creating arrangements on the spot. So there really wasn't anything written for those. Um, I have done some projects where I've got one actually coming out with my buddy Dan Dean, who's a bassist vocalist up in Seattle, where he's actually layering voices and doubling all the parts that I'm playing in my chord melodies. And then we actually create solos. So we, we created a virtual band and that took us about a year to do. But typically projects for me are quick head arrangements in the studio in and out. So, you know, I don't do really any arranging per se, uh, although I have been in some projects where there are some arrangements, but much less involved than a lot of what you guys do. Um, so I'm kind of a more on the fly guy, but I'm very interested obviously in harmony and the harmonic detail that can go, go into improvisation and chord melody and so forth, but arrangements, not so much. Got it. I can sure appreciate a good one though. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, and like, besides even the arrangements, you're just one of these guitar players that we talk a lot about on high action and in new West about expanding the sound with the 12. Mm -hmm. That was a sound you expanded. And I remember seeing you play with the stereo amp setup. You had a small rig yeah I, I still do that i don't know if you guys i mean when you if you're traveling if you're flying obviously it's sort of whatever amps are provided but i always take a little reverb pedal so if two small amps are available what i do if i'm driving i actually take an acoustic image rig uh with uh, an extension cabin and a little tube amp which i put in the middle because i like hearing the tubes and the solid state blended together which is very easy to do with the reverb pedal or any pedal that has two two outputs Right. So uh, I like this. I like. I've been using stereo now for years. I just like the sound being spread a little. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, before I toss it to Will, it's um, again, yeah, it's just it, it's so cool to talk shop like this with you, man, because you're you're such a, a fascinating guitar player and jazz musician too. Um, um, I guess one little last question too. Speaking of Ralph Towner, did you hang with him much when he was living in Oregon? Because didn't he live down in Oak Ridge for a while? Or I'm, Ralph was in Seattle for a while. When I met him, he was not in Portland. He actually, and Glenn Moore and Nancy King, who's a terrific singer who you guys may all know. Yeah. And I think she's still singing well, mostly retired now from touring, but has done some touring over the years. So they were all in a group together in college in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, Ralph was playing piano. I think Glenn bass and Nancy was singing and playing drums. So when they were all college age, they were all playing together. I never actually uh, played with Ralph. He, we just done a couple of songs together on David's second record for Inner City. I have a quick funny story actually about uh, the rehearsal we did. David and I were in New York rehearsing for the recording. And so I was given Ralph's address. He was living in Chelsea at that point, kind of Lower West Side. So I'm looking for his name in the lobby of the building and I see Stowell, same spelling as my last name. So I knock on Ralph's door and I say, "Is there? do you happen to know if there's someone named Stoll in the building? Did you know them? And he said, yeah, that's Esty Stoll. He lives next door. Esty was my cousin who I hadn't seen in years. 
So wow. I reconnected with Esty through Ralph. They were <laughs> they were next door neighbors in New York. What a small world. <laughs> Funny. Wild. So wow. yeah, and I may have I may have sat in with Ralph once or twice somewhere else when he was living in Seattle. Uh, but we never did any gigs together. But even playing on those couple of songs together on David's record was was fun. Yeah, that that answers some that and thanks, man. That answers some of my question because I always wanted to ask you about that connection with Towner. Being a native Oregonian myself, I'm fascinated with the Northwest history of all the musicians that have been in and out of there. Larry Coriel, all of these guys. Are- yeah, he was in, he was in, originally from Spokane and then was in Seattle for a while in the early '60s. David knew him then. Yep. Yeah, man. And uh, but just again. Thank you so much for always like setting such a great example for us kind of younger players to go out and like do your thing. I love your approach of like, just make it happen, get there, make the gigs happen because um, it it shows your your musicianship is amazing and just the artistry, what you've gotten to on the guitar. So I just, I had to say that before tossing it back to Will and yeah, yeah, it's just- I appreciate it, John. Well, you guys now have you guys now have some history doing this too. You've created an ensemble. You have a body of work. You've done yes. plenty of touring. Uh, you've put plenty of work together now too. So I would call you guys pretty seasoned players now as well in terms of your experience on the road, crafting an identity individually and with the trio. So yes, my head is off to you guys too. You're doing it. So John, um, you won't remember this. Hey, I'm well. sure. Um, we met when I was in high school. I went to a group master class of yours oh, wow. um, at a music shop, and I in Portland. In Portland, and I dug okay. out something yeah. you gave us, um, <laughs> right. which it's so funny looking through it because I've like I made notes, I underlined things, but you know the mm-hmm. things you talk about like the different modes of melodic minor and looking at all the triads mm-hmm. and the diminished scale. It was just so mm-hmm. cool, you know that that was an instrumental thing for me. I I remember like carrying that packet around high school, like studying it between class and stuff. So and I hey, we, I'm glad we played a song together. Um, I think it was what hmm. is this thing called love, and uh, I, don't okay. think, I don't think it was probably too memorable on your end as far <laughs> as playing with me at, at, at a tender high school age. But you know that was my first introduction to you. Great, um, and uh, I'd love to talk a little about your solo and duo playing, which you have mm-hmm. a lot of, and I mean you have a real command um, accompanying. You know whether it's singers or or the um, Sidney Boucher album. You know, I just that was David's about, idea, actually. Yeah, that was Dave's idea. That Bichet record. We can talk about that at some point if you like. So beautiful. We're, we're actually we're hoping to play a track off of it in a little bit. If if you want to talk a little about like your approach to duo and solo playing, well, let's talk about that now. So yeah. Dave, I met through Link Chamberlain again when I was basically Link's student. So you know, Dave was very kind. He realized that I was green but serious and wanted to get started. So I hadn't. I would occasionally bump into him on the road uh, over the years, although we had never played together. And then we were both up teaching in Banff, which is a nice learning center that you guys probably know about in Canada. Uh, Mike Stern was slotted for the uh, jazz workshop that they do every year, and he couldn't do it. And a friend of mine named Mark Basie, who was booking the Edmonton Festival for many years that I knew, uh, tried to slot me in as a last-minute replacement for about 10 days of that workshop. So I said, great. So I was there. Terrific faculty that year was um, Kenny Werner, Keith Copeland, uh, um, Don Thompson, Dave Liebman, and others. A mixture of some Canadians, Europeans, and Americans. Terrific faculty and great student body. So I'm chatting with Don Thompson in the lobby. I didn't really know Don well. He's a wonderful guy and terrific triple threat bass, fives, and piano. Yeah. He's originally from Vancouver and many years now in Toronto, but played with people like Jim Hall, George Shearing, and, and everybody else coming through Toronto. And Don said, hey, we can record while we're here. And I looked at him and I said, we can record. And he said, yeah, there's a studio they use to train engineers. 
And uh, if you're part of the program, either as a student or faculty, you just sign up for free time with the student engineers, but that, that they know what they're doing. So I said, that would be great. And Dave Lieben was standing next to us. He was also there on the faculty. And he said, I'll come too. <laughs> so we had no time to rehearse because we were busy teaching all day. So we just slotted a time in and we showed up. Dave wasn't there. So I'm assuming Dave got busy. So Don and I start recording and then Dave shows up in the middle. So he's on three tunes. So I just had a nice demo, no plans necessarily to put it out, but I like the music. And my friends in Seattle with Origin Records, John Bishop and Matt Jorgensen, and John and I have been playing together for years, and John put it out for me. So that was my first recording with Dave we did in 98. And then I hadn't seen him in quite a while, and just out of the blue, he made a nice comment on a video that I had on, the, on Facebook or YouTube. So I just sent him an email and said, thanks for your kind words and would love to play sometime. Not thinking he would answer quite honestly, because up until very recently, he was on the road all the time. But he did answer. So we've now done a couple of duo recordings where I just hired him, essentially. And he was living in Pennsylvania at the time. Now he's back in the city, I think. Mm -hmm. But there's a great studio out there called Red Rock with Ken Heckman. It's been around for you. Dave's used that studio for 30 years. So we went out and just had a quick rehearsal. And the first one we did was called Blue Rose, but we just both brought some tunes in. That's a really neat tune that Duke Ellington wrote for Rosemary Clooney, by the way. If you don't know it, check it out. Blue Rose. Yeah. And Dave thinks that it really sort of the precursor to milestones and giant steps because it has some harmonic movement kind of like train and the beginning is exactly like the uh, the melody to milestones the miles davis milestones and um but the tune was written in 56 before either one of those tunes but it's a really neat tune so that was our first duo collaboration and then i reached out to him again a couple of years later and said would you consider doing another recording and he said yeah let's do sydney bechet which kind of surprised me because Bechet and Liebman are about as different stylistically as you can imagine on the soprano. And a friend had sent um, Dave some Bechet transcriptions, and that might have been what got him thinking about it. So Dave did a little research and found about 10 Bechet tunes that are beautiful little well-crafted tunes, kind of like standards. Yep. And then I went online and checked out Bechet playing these tunes. And the only thing that dates his playing a little is just the fast vibrato that everybody used then. But the articulation, the ideas, and the tunes themselves, everything about it is wonderful. And Bechet apparently just saw a soprano sitting in a pawn shop. He came up playing clarinet with Louis Armstrong and just taught himself how to play the thing and was really maybe the first important voice on soprano. So for that record, uh, Dave actually, in a few different sections of some of the tunes, is playing portions of the actual Bechet solos. But for the most part, he's playing his own solos. And I think he found a way to sort of beautifully craft and modify his language to sort of suit these older tunes. And... I mean, it, it's, I guess you could, I'm not sure if it's really even recognizably Dave when you listen to it, quite honestly. But he gets a beautiful sound on the record, and I think he plays beautifully on it. Yeah. Your playing is beautiful on it. We have a snippet of it that we'd like to play, if that's okay with you. Great. Of course. Um, I'm also overdubbing, I'm overdubbing Fretless Baritone on a couple of the tunes. I'm not sure if that's on the one that you picked. Yeah, this is the second track. It's a snippet from Daniel. This is nice. Yeah, yeah. this is for, this was named for Bechet's son who I think is still active playing.
Beautiful. And Dave has such beautiful little legato lines that he plays underneath you, too. The tunes were a bit challenging because they were pretty diatonic, challenging in the sense that we really had to kind of dial back some of our vocabulary. But I think you should do this generally, just sort of sort whatever music you're playing. So in this case, you know, not lots of augmented major chords or tons of tensions over dominant. It just wouldn't fit the tunes. And Dave understood that very well, too, obviously. That's cool. Well, I wanted to just follow up a little bit um, with you, John, here on your, your duo recordings with Liebman. Um, one of the things mm-hmm. that I find really fascinating about your playing is that you have this ability when you're playing with a quartet, uh, maybe with bass or with drums or with uh, different different settings, to be very elastic with the times, where you can really be mm-hmm. laying back quite a bit and and having this really creative interaction with people in terms of the feel and the time. But often mm-hmm. when you're playing duo or solo, whether it's with Liebman or s- some of the vocalists you've worked with, uh, you have an ability to play right in the pocket and really solid swing in time. And I just wanted to ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about how you developed uh, your ability to do that. I know it has some things to do with your technique. And if you can talk a little bit about your feel in that regard, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. I remember Dave talking about this actually up at Banff about 20 years ago, where the quarter note placement can really change based on who you're playing with. Yes. So if I'm playing without a rhythm section, I think you guys feel this way too, because I've heard you do it. I tend to be a little on top of the beach. I like it to be dukum kiku king, kind of a little on top, sort of anticipation of a ride symbol like Jack DeJanette or like Eddie Gomez or Dave Holland might play the quarter note, just a little on top so that the time feels like it's not coming down or or I just like this kind of buoyant feel that what you get when you're anticipating things a little. Uh, but you can also play right in the middle of the quarter note if you're playing with someone who plays the bass more like Ray Brown, who's also incredible for just anchoring that quarter right in the middle. Yeah. Um, and laying back, uh, Dave talks about that too. If you have someone who really rushes, it can be fun to kind of pull back a little bit. So there's a bit of push-pull. So I don't know if you guys had the experience where you have to play with a click because you're overdubbing and maybe not sure, in the same room. Sure. Typically, I'm finding the click feels like it's kind of always holding you back a little because I tend to typically like to play a little on top of the beat. So playing with a click is challenging for that reason. We're not trying to be metronomes when we're playing together. We're adjusting to each other. So again, I think my placement of the eighth note or the quarter note depends on who I'm playing with in the context. Yeah. So I tend to be a little on top generally. This is just my preference. And sometimes it does feel like it's kind of rushing at the end of the tune. I realize, hmm, this head's a little faster than when we started, and it's me gradually pulling the, the eighth note up a little towards the tune. But a little bit of adrenaline, I honestly don't mind, as long as it doesn't feel out of control. But this is so much personal preference, isn't it? To me, it sounds swinging. It really does. And, you know, the duo stuff I'm most familiar with, uh, Petite Fleur, I guess that's how you say the sure. music of, of Sadie yes. Bechet and also Blue Rose. Right. Um, I was right. listening to that album this morning. And, yeah, I, I really love the, your feel behind Liebman and the way you guys play oh, together. Uh, I don't think it feels on top necessarily, although I guess it's a, it's all a sense of perspective. To me, it feels like you're really laying back and there's a real swing, swing to your plane and just getting, getting into your greater technique, the the way you kind of hold the guitar uh, more vertically than horizontal. I imagine that gives your left Mm -hmm. hand the ability for some stretching, but I'm also really curious to ask you about your right hand because I know uh, from watching you over many years that you balance that pick on, on your, uh, index finger, and, index finger. and you that's can right. go between using it for lines and go between using your fingers freely. Um, that's did right. you ever run into problems where you drop it right off the finger there? Because it seems a little precarious yeah. when it's just balanced. It is there. a little precarious. I have dropped it on occasion. Thankfully, not too often. There's enough <laughs> surface tension. 
I mean, I don't really know. There's no reason really to take my thumb away. I just do that maybe just to relieve a little, just to relieve a little tension. Yes. So sometimes I do take my thumb away. When I'm doing that, obviously, I'm not using the pick because there's no way to support the pick unless the thumb is holding it too. Yes. So my right hand sometimes does this where the thumb does go away and then I'm just using the fingers only. But it's, it happens in a very uh, unconscious way, Perry. I'm not deliberate. I'm not deciding time to take the thumb away. It just happens while I'm playing. Okay. And uh, so it's, you know, I've just been using this technique probably since, I don't know, since the 70s. So my right hand, just like you guys, you probably don't think about your right hand so much unless you're playing a really complex piece of music where you really right. have to work out picking. But I never worked that out. It just seems like it kind of happens automatically. And again, part of it is also matching the attack of the picking fingers. So you shouldn't hear a difference. Sometimes with the lines also in the last 20, 30 years, I've used the middle finger to articulate individual notes with the pick. So you should not hear a difference between the pick and fingers. So that's, I'm using flesh. It's not classical right hand, obviously. So I've just worked hard to try to create a balanced sound over the years uh, between um, the pluck notes and the pick note. That flows into my next question in regards to this, because uh, especially on these, these recordings with Liebman, well, I guess on all your recordings, but uh, I can hear a really beautiful kind of natural tone from the guitar that you're getting. I think it has a lot to do with your touch on the instrument. And one of the Thanks. things... Yeah, I mean, touch it. Well, you guys know this. If you all traded guitars, and you probably all have slightly different setups on your instrument, I gather, but it would still all sound like you. If you kept switching guitars around it around, say you had 10 guitars on the stage, and you all started with three, and then you all traded, and then you all picked up other instruments, it would still sound like you on all those instruments. So touch is something that's very personal that you can't really plan on. It just kind of develops over time. You develop a touch. Now, Some of that is how you... You know how you how you fret. Uh, maybe obviously strings pick up and amps have something to do with it, but it really is about touch. Yes, I I think so, and um, I think we would agree. And a lot of the guitar players we've talked to have, have mentioned how important developing an approach to solo guitar has been for mm -hmm. your touch on the instrument. So did you? Ever, I agree. Did you ever feel challenges early on when it came to playing solo guitar? I know it's something that you've excelled at and established yourself as an artist in that area, but did you feel struggles early on with trying to fill out the sound as a, as a player solo and deal with the time solo? Did, did you? Oh yeah, I still do. Uh, what I tell people is if you want to play solo, please investigate it because it's something we can do. And that's also a situation that'll open up lots of casual work. As you guys probably know, you probably yeah. all done some of it. Yeah, so oh, yeah. maybe a friend owns a restaurant or there's an art gallery or an event somewhere and we're sitting in the corner and it still feels more like a performance than if we're at home because people are in the room with us and occasionally people will come up and say how much they liked it. So I just tell people, create as many opportunities for yourself to play informally that are low pressure, like a background gig. And then eventually maybe a house concert where you're playing for some, or just play for some friends at a party. Create opportunities for yourself that are low pressure where you are playing alone. And initially, if you don't really know how to do this, just learn some chord melodies from somebody else. You know, hundreds of great chord melodies available. Good place to start are the Joe Passcourt solos or West Montgomery because the individual fingerings and in those arrangements are simple, but still in really nice arrangements. And then if you want to get into a little more detailed study, some of the folks that you guys know and like, like Jimmy Weibel or Ted Green or Gene Bertensini, who have yeah. this more pianistic approach, mm -hmm. but that's not a great place to start. I think you want to start with sort of more mainstream arrangements, which are also beautiful. I mean, Joe Pass and West Montgomery did really nice chord melodies too. So, uh, you know, develop a bit of repertoire in terms of the chord melodies. And then I think your ability to transition back and forth between chords and lines in the improvised portion of a tune is sort of a direct extension of your ability to play chord melodies because we're transitioning back and forth between chords and lines in an arrangement of a chord melody, either ours or someone else's. 
And then we can then translate that skill into the improvised part of the tune as well. So believe me, I'm still, it's still evolving in my case. Sometimes I listen to myself playing along, I don't like it at all. Hmm. Uh, other times I think, yeah, this is okay. But I'm still trying to fine tune it and evolve it too, believe me. So I'm still very much a work in progress, just like you guys. We're wow. never done, gentlemen. Yeah. It's, it's always evolving and changing. One of the silver linings of what we're in at the moment is just reaching out and creating more of these kinds of connections. And I think, you know, going forward, why not keep this as a part of our musical lives, just being more connected on the internet? That's really okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in regards of guitar players kind of supporting each other, you know, uh, I just want you to know, John, that when we were coming up, we, we really, really appreciated the support that you showed to us when you would come to L.A. and you would hang with our oh, teachers. I was happy to. When you would hang with I your, was happy to. Our, our teachers like Joe DiOrio and uh, Potenza and Pat Kelly and Pisano, you know, we felt like you were very welcoming of us into this club and that has meant the world to us. Uh, and, and certainly... Well, you're, in the, you're in the club, guys, <laughs> yeah. for sure. And I think you will also, but you'll also extend this courtesy and this favor to the folks that you interact with who are your students. And this is how we keep the music moving forward. It, you know, unless you're famous, this is how we have a musical life. We help each other. Yeah. And it's a pleasure when you hear some good younger players coming up who are serious, as we knew that you were and now that yeah. you are. So you're now in that position to extend that courtesy to people coming up under you. We're certainly very grateful of that. And I, I wanted to... Oh, it's to, an absolute pleasure. It's I, a pleasure. I wanted to just sort of try to wrap this up by asking you a, a, a one last question here. Um, Sure. You've had a really long career, and I think all of us want to have long careers. And I think mm -hmm. in, in any kind of career, there's a lot of highs and there's a lot of lows uh, in this business of mm -hmm. jazz guitar playing. And I'm just wondering if you could impart some advice to us and to musicians out there, really at any age, um, just about staying with it through a long career and, and managing the highs and lows and the things that mm -hmm. really keep you going throughout all that. Okay. Well, as you know, I think the love of the music is ultimately what keeps you going. I mean, if someone said to me, you can never make another dime playing the guitar, I probably would still play every day. And I think you guys probably feel the same way. The love of the craft and this notion that you can still be refining it, in some cases in your 80s, like John Pisano, who's still doing well. I really yeah. love that little bit of that interview that I saw with, with him. Uh, or Joe DiOrio, who unfortunately has got kind of retired from active playing, but still very sharp, as you know, John, yeah. from your interview. Maybe you guys all interviewed Joe, too. So you still see this creative force and this life spirit in some musicians in their mid to late 80s. Yeah. And so I think basically the love of the craft, this notion that you can still be refining and improving your playing, even if it's on very subtle levels, is what keeps you going. Um, I think if you feel that you have something that has some value, you can't take the rejections personally because they happen for all of us. Even the famous guys talk about ups and downs and canceled dates and problems and frustrations. So that's sort of part and parcel with doing anything creative. I think you can't take the rejection personally or think that somehow reflects on your merits or your worth as a musician. Uh, and then the other part of it is we've just been saying is to help and reinforce and encourage each other. So when you guys were young starting, the reason we were patient is the same reason that Dave Lehman and Link Chamberlain were patient and encouraging to me when I was quite young and not really playing particularly well. You can tell when someone is serious and when they have good musical intentions and they want to work. And then I think it's really our responsibility to encourage them. And now look where you guys are, kind of mid-career, doing fine, and understanding the fact that we have to put together probably a variety of sources of income because we probably don't make it just playing. So maybe it's teaching and playing, maybe it's playing a variety of styles, maybe it's something to do with production somehow or recording or something involved with music promotion. 
some friends of mine, I played with a very good bass player last night named Eric Gruber, who I'd never met, who lives in Portland now. He's been a banker for 30 years. And I said, boy, I didn't know he had another job because I just met him last night. He's a very good bass player. And I have another friend named Mark Kleinhaut that I play with sometimes in Albany, who's also been a banker for 30 years. Neither one of these men sounds like a part-time musician. So I also tell folks, if you find another job out, completely outside of music that you like well enough, that still gives you enough time and energy to pursue your musical life, fine. There's not a problem with this. And there's some folks who really don't play music full-time at all, but who love it and who play beautifully, who might be a lawyer or a doctor. So whatever portion of your life music is supposed to take up will kind of evolve over time. And some people maybe require them to require more financial um, input at some point or output. So they music is still there, but it's not their, their main occupation or their main focus. And then the kids all grow up and suddenly they have more time on their hands and they're back to playing music more full time. So, you know, how, how music evolves in your life and the amount of time and energy you can spend with it, all that has to do with your life circumstance. Right. So in my case, I've made a very modest living over, you know, 45 odd years doing this uh, with no wife, no kids, no mortgage. I've almost always rented rooms in people's homes and had roommates, and it's worked out by and large just fine. Now, I've been in the same house now for almost 20 years where I just rent a couple of rooms in someone's home. Very nice older woman who lives upstairs. We get along great. I can play here. I've got a half-acre garden I'm looking out at. I'm five minutes from the Lewis and Clark campus where Dan Bomber teaches, John. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, at some point, this lady will probably want to retire to a, maybe a retirement community, and I'll have to find another shared living arrangement, but I, I will. So in my case, it's really low overhead, uh, just working hard to try to establish these relationships, keep the music going forward. So I've done it, you know, at a very grassroots level, as I mentioned. I, I haven't done tours with bands for the most part. I've gone out as a single. You know the challenges of taking a band on the road, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so in my case, I just get myself where I'm going. And I'm generally, you know, some years up until March, I've been out eight, nine months of the year. And of that time of, you know, 260 odd days of travel, it might be five nights in hotels. So all the rest of the time, the people I'm working with are not only my musical mates on the bandstand, but they're my they're my hotel too. So you know I've just done this trying to be a good house guest over the years, helping my friends, building this little grassroots network over time, starting with David Friesen. So that was not a conscious game plan that just evolved over time. So you guys, I'm sure, are also still evolving strategies about how you want to make your living. Hey, I really like the collaboration with Tyranny. The little bit I heard, maybe we could collaborate sometime on a tune. That would be great fun. Oh. Man, that would yeah. be an honor. That would really be an honor. Well, let's just put that on the to-do list, maybe for some time. And if you consider doing a gig or a little collaboration in the future, I'd love to do it with you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. super, John. It's really hey guys, been, great. Sure, great to see you all. Yes, it, it really has been a pleasure. Um, thank you for joining us. I hope you're staying safe and healthy during these challenging times, and that you keep the music. Yeah, you guys too, I hope. And that you keep the music flowing. Um, you've been an inspiration to us for a long time. And the fact that you'd make some time to hang out with us, share your stories, share your experience on high action really means the world to us. So John Stoll, thank you. We're indebted to you once again. It's great to, great to see you all. Yes. Please I, tell me if you're coming to Oregon, any of you. And I'll, I'll do the same if I'm headed we your will. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. 
Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.